Again, I want to thank the music team for directing our minds to the cross in such a focused way this morning. As has already been mentioned, today we do come to the cross. It is that moment in the life of Christ that John has been building towards throughout his entire gospel. It is the centerpiece of the work of Christ on earth. And indeed, it is the centerpiece of Scripture itself. All of Scripture is anticipating and focused around this particular moment. And yet it is a, it's a difficult and daunting moment to, to study and to meditate on. I think of some of those great global conflicts in history, world wars and the such. And you think of those, those great moments of victory when, when the soldiers come home, when the ticker tape parades are going on, when there's celebration and rejoicing in the streets and everybody is so excited. And yet that can't happen if there wasn't bloody conflict in the trenches. If there wasn't painful struggle and high prices paid, you don't get to have the victory unless you've won the war. And when you talk to a lot of those soldiers coming back from the battlefield, it's interesting how many of them struggle to be able to come to the point where they can speak of what they endured. And so there's a degree to which it is, it is difficult to stop and to consider in a concentrated way our Savior's travail, the bloody trenches that he went through to secure the victory that we will celebrate as we approach the empty tomb in a few more weeks. But it is right and it is good for us to count the cost and to see what he did that gives us life. And so I would encourage you, if you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, would you take it and would you turn in it to John chapter 19? This morning our text will be verses 17 to 30. And as you're able, if you could stand to honor the reading of God's Word, I'd encourage you to follow along with me. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 17, the Word of God reads thus, they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus knowing that all things had already been accomplished. To fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we ask for your blessing on our time in your word today. As we consider a hard subject, and yet such a rich subject, we pray, Lord, that you would impress it upon us in such a way that we would become not so overwhelmed and enamored with the violence and the spectacle, but that we would become overwhelmed and enamored with your son, Jesus Christ, and with his finished work on the cross on our behalf, that we would leave today better worshipers of you. We thank you, Father, as we've just sung, for sending Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would produce in us that supernatural gratitude, which can be the only right response to such love as this. This we pray in the name of your Son. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your notes this morning, you'll notice that the title is The Perfection of the Christ. And when we consider Jesus, certainly we are considering a Christ, a Messiah, a Savior, who is perfect in every way. He is perfect in his character. He is perfect in his attributes. He is perfect in all that he possesses and does in power and in deity. And yet, in Hebrews, we read this fascinating thought. In Hebrews chapter 5, the author there is presenting Jesus as the great high priest. And he writes in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, In the days of his flesh, speaking of Jesus, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And listen to this. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal life. It is that mystery that I want to look at today. The perfection of the Christ There was no lack in Jesus, no flaw in character that needed to be filled up, no deficit in understanding or attribute. But in the same way that a a carpenter who is perfect in his understanding of his craft and he's perfect in his utility with his tools and he's perfect in his comprehension of the blueprint is perfected when the house is built and completed... So Jesus Christ is being perfected in his obedience unto death and the accomplishing of the work for which he came into the world. And John uniquely wants us to revel in this perfection. If you read the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke looking at the cross, they focus a lot on the suffering of our Messiah and all of the darkness that surrounds it from the remorse of Judas and his suicide the crown of thorns upon Jesus' head, the violent beatings that he endured repeatedly, the cries of agony uttered from the cross, the supernatural darkness, the earthquakes that accompanied his death, and the tearing of the veil. And none of that is in John's gospel. His purpose is different. And it's interesting to me that that is the case because of all the apostles Only one actually stayed with the Savior and personally witnessed all those horrors. And perhaps that is part of the reason why he moved so quickly past them. Some of you have witnessed horrific things and have come to see that often it is those who have heard secondhand that are much more easily able to speak of that than you can. It's hard to go back and visit such a dark place. We don't have to speculate why it is that John wants us to see past the blood, past the horror, past the brutal execution, because he has given us so clearly his purpose in all that he wrote. And as we've looked at so many times, I remind us of John 20, 31, where John says, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing you may have life in his name. And so John holds up for us in his account of the crucifixion, nothing less than the word made flesh, God in human form. And he calls us to behold the Christ, 
the Messiah, and beholding to believe in him as the source of eternal life. And I believe he holds the Christ forward to us in three powerful roles that we ought to believe and to worship him for. And so if you're taking notes this morning in verses 17 to 22, let us heed the call to believe the Christ is your king. Believe the Christ is your king. John begins to lay out the crucifixion for us beginning in verse 17. He says, They took Jesus, therefore... Pilate has rendered his final verdict, a cowardly verdict, as we saw last week, an unjust verdict. And the Roman soldiers who are now assigned to perform the execution take custody of Jesus under the watchful eye of the Jewish leaders. The arresting force has now become an execution squad. Continuing on, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Jesus would have been forced to carry the cross beam of his own cross, the march from the judgment seat through the city to a prominent hill just outside the city gates. It was meant to be a demonstration of Roman subjugation, of the will of Rome forced upon the condemned so that their last act was a required act of submission. The humiliation and inevitability of such justice serving as a powerful and public deterrent to all who would oppose Rome and her laws. Many of you have perhaps seen pictures of the traditional place of the crucifixion, that rock outcropping that some say resembles a skull, and that is one of the places we are most sure Jesus did not die. But it would have been a rise in the ground located just outside of the city gates on the approach to Jerusalem, a place where people could not miss the gruesome scene of dying men. It was called tapas cranium in the Greek, calvaria, calvary in the Latin, Golgotha in the Hebrew, and in English simply, the place of a skull. It was a place infamously and intimately associated with death. And so we read, there they crucified him. And with him, two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Arriving at the scene at about nine in the morning, the Romans would have efficiently carried out their orders. The victims were forced to lie down upon that crossbeam they had carried, and long metal nails were driven through both arms right below the wrists. A vertical pole was set into a hole in the ground, and then the condemned were hoisted into the air until the crossbeam could be fixed on the vertical pole. A small platform for the feet was affixed to the pole, and then a single spike was driven through the victim's ankles, affixing them to the cross as well. Death by crucifixion was a slow death, as a person painfully lost strength, often over the course of several days, until they were no longer able to push themselves up by their nailed feet and pull themselves up by their nailed hands to draw in and expel air, and so death by crucifixion was ultimately a death of suffocation. And it was a death so terrible that no Roman citizen, no matter how heinous their crimes had been, could be executed by crucifixion. This unspeakable evil the Roman soldiers committed against the person of Jesus with the giddy approval of the leaders of God's people, the Jews, with massive crowds among whom were certainly many who had been crying out Hosanna only days earlier, not intervening on his behalf. And on either side, two other men who meet the same fate, the Romans not wanting to waste this opportunity to work through their backlog of executions. It's not hard to imagine, despite all this visible presence of evil, that there were invisible ones as well. What a cackling cry of triumph must have echoed from demon to demon and from the great enemy himself, Satan. But as I said in the beginning, the purpose of John is not to fixate upon the visceral ugliness of this scene, but to see Jesus even here on the cross as the Christ, the Son of God, presenting himself as the Savior of mankind. One can imagine a small shudder going through John as he recalled what he had seen and what he had heard that is summarized here so simply as, there they crucified him. 
but he dips his quill into the ink and he moves quickly on to focus not on the Savior himself upon the cross, but to focus on a small sign above the head of Jesus. And so in verses 19 to 22, we see the presentation of the king. John informs us Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. This much was typical. It was customary for the sentencing official to have the crime of the condemned displayed publicly at their execution as a warning to others. In fact, often it was worn about the neck as they moved their way through the city and then affixed to their cross at their execution. What was not typical here was what Pilate chose to write on this particular placard. We continue on. It was written, Jesus, the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am King of the Jews. Can you imagine how frustrated Pilate is right now with these Jews? In reality, he has always had the opportunity to do what is right. But as this scene played out, he has felt himself boxed in politically so that from his perspective, he feels he has inevitably had to do the will of these detestable Jews. And he is determined here to have the last laugh at their expense. He writes what is calculated to be the most grating and annoying summary of the charge against Jesus that he can think of. Nazareth, as you recall, is a city universally looked down upon all in Israel. It was backwards. It was insignificant. It was embarrassing. Even the name Jesus is simply the Greek way of expressing the common Hebrew name Joshua. Pilate, in essence, is taunting the Jews. Hey, I found and killed your mighty king, some dude named Josh from the middle of nowhere. The Jews, as expected and perhaps as hoped, immediately react and come back to Pilate and start complaining and requesting a change of language, especially since the notice was written in three different languages so that none of the thousands coming into Jerusalem could misunderstanding what it said. But they have no more political leverage. They've played their cards. And Pilate responds with what I'm sure from his perspective was grim satisfaction. What I have written, I have written. Deal with it. Indeed, he did write those words. But here's the twist. And it's the kind of twist John has been showing us over and over and over in his gospel. And it's the kind of twist that causes us to say, what's the point, John, of focusing so much attention on this little sign? Pilate had a rotten, sarcastic, petty attitude. And he lashes out. But God used it anyway to post one of the truest things anyone had ever said about Jesus. Has there ever been a king like this? Indeed, there has not. Jesus was Jesus from Nazareth. Not some mythological figure from history, but an actual person born into this world. The God-man. Fully God in his divinity and fully royal in his humanity, having descended from the line of David himself on both his mother and father's side. One who had the right to claim heirship to David's throne. That throne that sat vacant because there was no king worthy to take it. What a king saw, excuse me, what a king David had been. Mighty as a warrior, mighty as a poet, mighty as a man of God, and an adulterous murderer. What a king his son Solomon had been. Full of wisdom, cunning, and able to amass wealth beyond people's wildest imaginations. And yet in so many ways a fool given over to his appetites and ultimately an idolater. 
and so on through the entire sad line of Israel and Judah's kings. Even the occasional bright light like Hezekiah were not immune from vain glory. Right down to Zerubbabel trying to preside over a sacked town with a pathetic rebuilt temple. No king had come along who was so perfect, who was so complete, who had no deficiency of character or of power, that he could take the throne of David to rule forever. (coughs) And John says, here he is. Here he is. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And as we will go on to see, he's simply the king, period. You will find no other king like this king, for what other king ever has or ever will do this for you? Not only is Christ the king, but John holds him forth as the great prophet as well. Second in your outline this morning, believe that Christ is your prophet. 23 to 25, the first part. Verse 23, John goes on to say, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. It was a bonus granted to those who executed prisoners in the Roman army that they could divide amongst themselves the belongings of the condemned. And so the soldiers divide the outer garments of Jesus four ways. This may have been dividing Jesus' robes along the lines of seams, or they each had an untorn piece of cloth, or it may have simply been divvying up the components of Jesus' outer outfit, shoes to one, belt to another, robes to another, etc., However, when they come to the inner tunic of Jesus, they have a problem. With the outer garments, there were just enough pieces for each of the four soldiers assigned to the execution. But now you have one piece of clothing remaining, and it is one not easily divided, woven as it is in one piece. And so they decide, well, let's roll the dice and see who gets lucky. And like the sign above the head of Jesus, this is meant to be a display of total disregard and humiliation. Can you imagine it? To be taken to the place of your execution, to be stripped naked and humiliated in front of the throngs of people, hung up upon a cross and hang there watching your executioners divide up your goods among themselves as though you were already dead. But once again, What initially seems to be a small and insignificant insult is used by God to declare truth. This was, John writes, to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Had you asked the soldiers what they thought they were doing, They may have given you a number of possible answers, but not one of them would have suggested, I'm here to fulfill prophecy. John quotes here from Psalm 22. The same psalm we are reminded that Jesus himself quoted from the cross when he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I would commend that you perhaps make as part of your meditation on the cross this week a meditation on Psalm 22 as well. We're being reminded here, as we have been reminded over and over in the Gospel of John, that Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. Jesus, as he has told us over and over, he speaks the words of God. Jesus fulfills the words of God, because unlike any prophet in history, Jesus is the word of God. Has there ever been a prophet like this? No. His revelation is complete. His revelation is clear. He is that which Peter tells us all other prophets knew in some dim way they were pointing the way forward to 
and longed to understand and see, but couldn't. He is the way, the truth, the life, and by his words, we are sanctified. How tragic that it is so tempting for some of us to live as though the pundit on our favorite news station is the authoritative voice for what is going on in the world and how we ought to live. The people of Christ look to him for the word of God. Is that so for us? Not simply as a concept, not simply as an affirmation, but have we set aside the time so that we might become intimately acquainted with what he has said? So that we know what our God has to speak when it comes to all the issues of the day? Have we trained our minds with the discipline that no matter what we hear from whatever source it might come from, be it this pulpit or anywhere else, we go back to say, what has the living God said? For that is the word that is true. Do you believe that Christ is your prophet? And then thirdly, this morning, where we will spend the remainder of our time, do you believe that Christ is your great priest? Your great priest. And we begin first with this precious insight that Christ, in performing his priestly role here on the cross, is a compassionate and personal priest. And this is the pinnacle of the work of Christ. John gives us a taste of the kingship of Jesus, but let's face it, the real lesson on King Jesus is still coming. Amen? And though we have the word of God inscripturated to which we can go to understand the revelation of God, it's still not quite the same as that day when we shall be like him and able to see him as he is and fully be able to comprehend the revelation of God that is in Christ Jesus. But this, this is the peak of the priestly work of Christ. This is the pinnacle of his office as an intermediary, an interceder between man and God. And it begins with a group of women. Look at verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene, Turning his attention from the cross and the soldiers to the crowd, John pulls our attention to this small group of four women. First, you have Mary, the mother of Jesus, and next to her you have Mary's sister that the other Gospels name Salome and tell us she is John and James' mother. So not only do you have Mary, the mother of Jesus, but John is standing there with his own mother, as well, making John, the gospel writer, the nephew of Mary, the mother of Jesus. You also have <coughs> Mary of Clopas. The rest of scripture tells us she is the mother of James the Lesser and Joseph, otherwise known as Joseph. And finally, Mary Magdalene, she from whom seven spirits had been cast out. All women directly related or closely connected to the ministry of Christ with bonds of deep affection. And in verse 26, we read this, when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Jesus is Mary's son, but he's not talking about himself. He's not hanging on the cross saying, mother, look at me. He's saying, Mary, look at John as your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. John is standing next to his mother, but John is not, or Jesus is not talking about John's mom. He's directing John's attention to Mary. And saying, John, take Mary as though she were your very mother. What a dear, compassionate act this is. Christ, our perfect example in all things, honoring his father and his mother in such a tender way. 
Joseph at this point is almost surely dead. The responsibility for the home would have fallen upon Jesus. And Jesus looks out as the firstborn son. He looks out and he sees his mother who will be left alone. The other brothers of Jesus at this point do not seem to have yet turned to him to worship him. And Jesus also knows that in the future, when they do, they are still destined for a martyr's death. The daughters of Mary are almost certainly married off at this point, and they are part of other households. Mary is going to be left alone. And so Jesus, as one of his final acts, ensures the protection and care and comfort of his mother. She is grieving, as was promised When Jesus was first brought to the temple for consecration on his eighth day, a sword would pierce her heart. This is that day. And Jesus makes sure that from this very hour she will not be alone. And I think that is one of the reasons why it is the Apostle John, alone among all the apostles, who dies of old age, as John ensures and the the Lord allows him to live long enough to care for Mary for the rest of her life. What a merciful Lord we serve. There's a lot going on in the cross. The attention of Christ is on the salvation of the world. His body is screaming as every human nerve has been tortured. And yet in the midst of all that, he does not fail to see the needs of the one and give the time and attention necessary to intercede for the individual. That's the kind of high priest we have. One who is not so busy with the needs of the people that he does not see and know and care and give attention to the needs of the one. But we turn finally to Christ's work on behalf of all men. In verses 28 to 30. Verse 28 says this, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And I confess it is hard to even try to approach these words. John now takes us ahead in time a few hours. We are now between 2 and 3 p.m. And he writes these words. Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished. That simple phrase is pure, undiluted, mysterious, glorious, terrifying gospel. What transpired between the after this and the knowing that in this verse is the most profound thing that has ever or will ever transpire in all of time and eternity. In the space between those two phrases, God the Father crushed God the Son. You see, we needed more than simply a king with the authority to claim us as his own. We needed more than a prophet who revealed to us the fullness of God. We needed a priest who could intercede for us with a sacrifice capable of taking our place in satisfying the wrath of a holy God against our sins. And in this verse, John approaches almost with shielded eyes this unspeakable moment when the Lamb of God took his place upon the altar and the full force of heaven came down upon him instead of upon you and me. This is why Jesus came into the world. This is what Jesus spoke of to his mother Mary at the Feast of Cana, when he told her, My hour has not yet come. It's what he was referring to with the woman at the well when he said, My hour has not yet come. When the Jews wondered about the resurrection and Jesus said, My hour hasn't come, he was talking about this. 
to the Jews who were repeatedly trying to kill him and could not. It was because, as John has told us repeatedly, his hour had not yet come. To the Gentiles who sought an audience with him after his triumphal entry, Jesus said, the hour is upon you. And to his disciples on that final night in the upper room, over and over, he said, the hour is arriving, the hour is arriving. This is the hour, the literal ticking clock hour for which God became man and came into the world. And it's not only the reason for which God came into the world, this is the reason for which the world came into being. Here is the full glory of God on display. Finally, this was the scene. Everything else was a plot for. All previous history is mere anticipation. All subsequent history into eternity is celebration. And if only we had spiritual eyes to see what transpired here in the unseen realm. The Christ is brought to the place of the skull. The serpent and his vile entourage slither around the hill as Jesus is crucified. Hours drag on and Jesus grows weaker. He cries out that he is abandoned by God. Could it be that the Son has been rejected by heaven as Satan and the demons were? Have they really triumphed over the second person of the Trinity? Will this be the great victory of the devil? But no, what is happening? A crack in the sky, a shaft extending to the throne of God himself. Even from earth, the heat of God's wrath can be felt roiling from on high. A shudder passes through the ranks of darkness. This does not feel like the shard of wrath that banished Satan from heaven and cast him down to earth after the rebellion. This is unmixed and unmeasurable wrath. What will its object be? Is the father about to strike down the serpent for good? Will he consume the earth and its evil inhabitants as well? Is all the universe to be ended in an instant as the white-hot conflagration of holy zeal blisters creation back into the nothing it came from? Without warning, the blast descends. Unstoppable judgment in a swirling pillar aimed directly at the sun. The spiritual world is full of smoke and flame, reeling from the maelstrom of divine justice. The angels of heaven are wondering, oh God, what have you done? Even the devil peeking out from shelter is wondering the same thing. Oh God, what have you done? The earth is shrouded in darkness and impenetrable black hides the cross. It is as though the wrath of God has bored a bottomless crater through reality itself and obliterated the Son of God. A hush falls on heaven and earth. Then the faint contours of cross-fixed beams come into focus the outline of a royal head. He faintly asks for a drink. Sharp vinegar is lifted up. His lips move and a single word escapes. Tetelestai. It is finished. With that word, the wrath of God ceases. It is not withdrawn it is exhausted. The light of the favor of God beams down upon the Son. He in turn surrenders his spirit to the Father and all watch as the human body goes limp in death. But this death is different, though it will take three days before all can appreciate just how different Easter is coming. Sorry. It is finished. 
What precious words are these for sinners like you and me? When we speak of justification, of propitiation, of redemption, of satisfaction, of atonement, they're all just different ways of trying to understand and express the good news that it is finished. Not figuratively, not mythologically, but objectively, historically, and truly finished. It is simply true that what took place here is beyond comprehension. Jesus bears more wrath here on the cross than Satan ever will. Think on that. The torrent of God's wrath and hell flowing into the jaws of the dragon for all eternity will never reach such a point that he can say, I have drunk as much of the wrath of God as the Son of God did on the cross. Because Satan will never be able to say, it's finished. And Jesus did. Think that never before in history, never again in eternity, will so much of the power of God be on display. For God brought all things into existence with a word. But he had to pour all of his infinite wrath out on the Son. And the Son had to absorb all the infinite wrath of the God on the cross. There is no moment so awesome in all of time and eternity as this one. And therefore it is simply true that we have a responsibility to hear and to believe the words of Jesus and the work of Jesus. Perhaps you are new to the church, perhaps you've been around the church for a long time, but perhaps today is the day the Father is drawing you to finally have a true reckoning with the work of Jesus on your behalf. Do not harden your heart, I beg of you, by the love of Christ. I call you to confess that you, along with all who have ever lived in this world, are a lawbreaker. You do what you know to be wrong. You see within yourself a nature that loves to do that which pricks your own conscience. And acknowledge that God is a holy God and is not satisfied by simply trying to be less evil on average than other people. Because his standard is complete perfection. Because that is the only good and right standard for a holy God to have. And on our own, we can never get to the point where we can say it is finished. We are finite creatures and we cannot pay an infinite price. It is just not possible. And so look there in your Bibles. That simple word in Greek, those three little words in English, it is finished. There is all your hope. There is all your peace. Jesus has taken the place of sinners. He has satisfied the wrath of God completely. And today, if you wish to have peace with God, the God who made you and have the hope of dwelling with him forever, it is as simple as saying, God, forgive me because Jesus finished it. Mysterious, divine, way beyond our comprehension, but simple. It is by grace what God has done for us that we don't deserve through faith, our believing and trusting what God has done for us, that we are saved. Because contrary to popular opinion, the wrath of God is real. But by the kindness of God, his wrath can be removed permanently and completely from us in Christ. As Paul celebrated in Romans 8.1, therefore there is now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How's that for good news? If you need to ask God for forgiveness in Jesus today, do so, I plead with you. Do so even right now in your heart before God. For those who have come to know Jesus, there's a warning for us as well. Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 3, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was public, publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected? Same root word as it is finished. 
Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Jesus finished it. And Paul says, we better not be so foolish as to run around thinking that we still need to finish it. Dear Christian, do you rest in the finished work of Christ? Do you wake up each day with the joy of knowing in Christ your Father is satisfied with you completely? He loves you unquestionably. He holds you securely. And that there's nothing you can do to threaten that basic relationship you have with your Father through the finished work of His Son. How tragic it is that so many of us live our lives of good works, which we are called to do, not in the gratitude of the acceptance of the Father through the Son, but with some idea that I have to keep trying to finish it so that God will somehow still accept me. And we live that way, and then we parent that way, and we disciple that way, and we we law and fear into what ought to be this glorious symphony of grace. We must repent so that our gospel witness to the world can be clear in these dark days. Critical race theory, equity movements, justice movements, and a host of others, they're all religions with a view of wrath that condemns, but no Savior who atones. It's an endless finish it without any way to declare it is finished. And what a restless, hopeless, and condemned world we live in. This world looks to broken men to lead us into a shining kingdom. They cannot because they are all evil too. They are too impotent. They are too short-lived. But my king in whom I have believed, he is building a kingdom that will never end. Amen? This world looks to prophets of wisdom and science to show us the way, the truth, and the life. They cannot. They lie. They lack understanding and knowledge. There is no fear of God before their eyes. But my great prophet, in whom I have believed, he is the fullness of God in bodily form. Of his fullness we have all received, and he is the exact representation of the Father's nature. Indeed, the very radiance of his glory. He came into this world for this reason, to testify to the truth. Amen? This world looks to priests of activism and acclaim. They ask them to make us righteous so that we may overcome the brokenness of the world around us, but they cannot because they are broken too. They do not understand the ways of righteousness. They can only try to slaughter endless bulls and goats of those they deem unjustified in their eyes. But no satisfaction is ever reached. And the priests of tomorrow will offer the priests of today up as sacrifices on ever new altars. But my high priest, in whom I have believed, he has made himself the sacrifice. He has entered into the veil and returned with the expunged records of his elect. He has justified forever those who place their faith in him. Amen? If you believe this, O church of Christ, then would you take the cup and the bread this morning? As the music team comes, we prepare to close this morning. We look at Paul's familiar words when he writes to the church in Corinth, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We we dare not forget. We dare not forget what our Savior has done for us. But there's more. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. If you turn to Jesus because he gives you comfort when all of your earthly kings have failed you, you have not judged the body rightly. He must be your king Every day. 
And if we turn to the words of Christ only to find solace when we have turned to the broken and dry cisterns of this world first, then we do not understand that he is our prophet and we have not judged the body of Christ rightly. And if we think in any way we can somehow add to the finished work of Jesus Christ, that we can finish what he has declared is finished through our works of the flesh, oh, how tragically we have judged the body rightly. And if we would gather in his name this morning and harbor in our hearts the hypocritical animosity of anyone against another who was died for by Jesus Christ or in our hearts harbor unrepentant sin to the God we were brought into fellowship with, we have judged the body wrongly. And so I invite us all to take just a moment quietly and if we must do some business with God so that we can partake rightly and remember worthily, let us do that in a moment. I will pray, we will take, and we will sing. Father, we come to the close of our time around your word this morning. We do not come to the end of the subject of your son and his sacrifice for us. I pray that you would press this on our hearts this week, that it would be the subject of our meditation. Enlarge our gratitude for what Christ has done. Enlarge our comprehension of what it means to have had one take our place. Enlarge the loving and joyful obedience that ought to be the natural fruit of those who have been made alive in Christ. And Lord, even now as we partake of this bread and this cup together, we pray, enlarge the unity of the faith here at Valley Bible Church, that we would present to the world a picture of that great family for which your son came to die, and we would testify rightly of him, both in word and in deed, until he returns, because we do look forward to his glorious return, and that is why we pray in his name. Amen. Let us take together. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand and we will close.